It is a great honor and joy to be with you and see some familiar faces and some new faces. And thank you so much, Dan, for your trust and the stewardship. A quick word about where we're headed in the arc of the three sessions. In this first one, uh, we want to talk about, focus on the heart of Christian ministry, and in particular, the amazing promise and pledge and requirement of joy in the ministry, how we profit our people through joy in the ministry, which is not an easy topic because there are many things in the course of our ministries that challenge our joy. Not just the last three years and things related to COVID and all that, all the time our joy is being challenged in ministry. And this passage from 1 Peter, where we'll start, is relevant because he begins with so, so connects it to chapter four, which is all about suffering. So elders in the church are working in the context of suffering, of disappointments, of challenges, of friction in church life. And I think the way he gets from chapter four into chapter five is good leadership is so important when there are challenges to the flock, when there is suffering, when there's conflict, when there's difficulty. And so he moves from suffering to so as a fellow elder <laughs> to the elders. And so brothers, if you come in here this morning and you are, you are in a season where there are challenges, difficulties, this is, it's been a thick season of trials. He just made it in here. The tank's empty. I pray that God would be pleased in these moments to restore the joy in your ministry, that gathering here together with these brothers would have that effect for us for challenge days. And if you come in this morning and it's a great season, there aren't immediate challenges that make it difficult. I'm not encountering obstacles and friction at every point that God would be preparing you for that time, strengthening your joy, solidifying it, making your heart resilient for the challenges that are coming. So in this first session, we'll talk about the joy at the heart of Christian ministry. And then we'll move into the, our two key tasks as pastors and elders, which are teaching and governance. And we'll talk about those two attributes as they relate to elder qualifications and the callings of our life and even practically how we may grow in those things. And then in the third session, how we come up against the world around us. And in particular, two of the eldership attributes and qualities that are particularly challenged on the front lines with our society. One, for a while, generational. One, more recently, in, in the last few years. There's our pattern here uh, for this morning. So let me read for us 1 Peter 5, 1 to 5, and pray for this session and dive in. So, in this context of suffering and challenges, so Peter says, I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. 
Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So, Father in heaven, we come before you this morning humbling ourselves, wanting your grace. Give grace to the humble. Father, purge us of pride and arrogance. Make us humble before you in the posture that we should have to be good ministers and instruments of your work in and through us in pastoral ministry. And Father, would you refresh us in the vision? I don't pretend to bring much or anything new here to the brothers this morning, but would you strengthen our hands and strengthen our hearts in your word, in these glorious truths about who you are for us and your son, what kind of power you provide for us, what kind of promises you make to us, and what an amazing calling you've given to us in the work we have as current pastors and elders and in the work that we may aspire to and seek preparation for in the coming days. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Brothers, as you may know, in enduring the burdens of pastoral ministry, one of the most precious promises for pastors is Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus says, I will build my church. Jesus is the chief shepherd. There's the passage, when the chief shepherd appears. He is the shepherd and overseer of our souls, Peter says in chapter 2. He is the great shepherd of the sheep, Hebrews 13. He builds his church. Jesus' work will not fail. He will prevail over sin, over death, over hell, over disease, over division in our churches. And one of the ways that Christ governs and builds his church, one of the key ways, and blesses his church is by giving her the gift of local leaders in particular congregations. Ephesians 4, right? You know it, you love it. He gave, Jesus gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Faithful pastors, brothers, are gifts to their churches, gifts from the risen Christ to guide and keep his church. And as pastors, this is a truth that we do well to not regularly rehearse in public as the spokesman of the truth. Hey, church, I'm a gift to you. However, it's good when somebody else can speak that into your life. So given that you may not rehearse this all the time for your congregation, brothers, let me just say at the outset here this morning, you are a gift from the risen Christ to your people. Whatever difficulty you're going through or have come out of or are headed into, you are a gift from Jesus to your church. No matter what that email said this week, no matter how flat that last sermon fell, no matter what you hear whispered about leaders in society, and you know it applies to you too because you're in office. And no matter what that person posted online, and you didn't see it because you're circumspect about all that garbage, but your wife saw it and she mentioned it to you and now you know it's out there. It's about you or your church. No matter what's been said explicitly or implicitly, to the contrary, you, dear brother, as you lean on Jesus, are a gift to your people. And of course, we as pastors and elders, we are flawed, 
We are sinful. Some who have carried the name pastor have done terrible things, fleeced the flock, made horrible mistakes, sinned grievously, harmed the very ones they were commissioned to protect. But such failures in public Christian ministry are not owing to the biblical vision of what true leadership is. Rather, such failures fell short of God's vision or departed from it altogether. In fact, such failures show by way of contrast what real leadership is and should be, which is what we want to rehearse here this morning. So that's our focus here, what Christ calls leaders in his church to be, and in particular in the lead office or teaching office of the church, that of pastor or elder or overseer, which I take as three titles for one essential office, and we'll see that, we'll see connections here in our text and others here today. So let me begin with three preliminary observations before we work through the not-but pairs, which are so powerful in verses two to three. That's where we spend most of our focus in this first session, the not-but pairs. <laughs> Rich asked for the notes ahead of time. I'm not used to this. So you know where I'm going. <laughs> the three not-but pairs, and here's my three uh, preliminary observations. Number one, elders are plural. Elders are plural in 1 Peter 5.1 and throughout the New Testament. This is one of the most important truths to rehearse that Christ means for our work to be teamwork. This is so vital. As in 1 Peter 5, so in every context in which local church pastors are mentioned in the New Testament, the title is plural. Christ reigns alone as Lord of the church. He is head, solo head, one head in the church. The glory of singular leadership in the church is Christ's alone. And he means for his under shepherds to labor and to thrive, not alone, but as a team. Now I know that you may have found yourself in a situation in which you are alone, by definition, or feel alone. And I don't think you're in error or in sin necessarily to be in that context. However, guided by the biblical text, I want you to dream about a team and pray about a team and consider some modest, humble steps where God might be willing to provide key brothers in your task of pastoral ministry, that the kind of pastors that our people long for are good men with good friends. We want our pastors to have good friends. We want our pastors to have teammates in the ministry who love them enough to challenge their instincts and tell them when they're wrong and hold them to the fire of accountability and make life harder for them and better for them, both more uncomfortable and more fruitful. So number one, elders are plural. And if you don't find yourself in a plural elder situation, I'm glad you're here. You're welcomed here. I don't presume you're in error. You may be at the outset of, of the beginning of a really important work where God is expanding that ministry to team ministry over time. Number two, past elders are pastors. Observe that main verb in 2 Peter 5, 1 to 5, which is Peter's charge to the elders. Shepherd, 
There's the verb. Shepherd the flock. Shepherd as a verb is a really rich image. Consider all that shepherds do. Shepherds feed, they water, they tend, they herd, they protect, they guide, they lead to pasture, they govern, they care for, they nurture. To shepherd is a picture of what we might call benign rule. The shepherd is a good ruler, a good governor of the flock. Not domineering, as we'll see. In shepherding, the good of the sheep is bound up with the good of the shepherd. So as the shepherd leads the people well, he benefits and gains, and the sheep benefit and gain. The concept of shepherding, as you brothers know, in your calling or aspiration to it, has a rich Old Testament background, not just in the patriarchs and the nation of Israel in Egypt and then in the wilderness, but also in King David, the shepherd boy who became the nation's great king, God's anointed one, and he came to be the one who anticipated the greater anointed one. And so with David and in the prophets, shepherding takes on messianic overtones. David, of course, has his grave failures in shepherding the nation. But after David, the trend of Israel's kings, Judah's kings, doesn't get better. He had a couple exceptions of continual downgrade. And so five centuries later, the prophet Ezekiel condemns the nation's leaders as those who feed themselves. It's a really relevant word for us as shepherds, as pastors, as those who are charged to feed. So this is Ezekiel 34, 2-4. He says, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones. But do you not feed the sheep? The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. But with force and harshness you have ruled them. Force and harshness. So the appointed leaders should have fed the flock, not fed on the flock. They should have strengthened their people and sought them out and healed them and bound up their wounds and brought them back. But instead they governed them with force and with harshness. Not benign rule. You might call it malignant rule. And so the people of Israel, they long for a shepherd, a king who will rule them with both strength and gentleness. That he'll rule with clarity and with kindness, with decisiveness and yet persuasion and patience and grace, even as he protects them from their enemies. And so God says in response again and again in Ezekiel 34, I will rescue my flock. And he also says, I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. Note that, note that prominence of feeding language in this shepherding metaphor. And then the prophet Micah foretells that from Bethlehem, the city of David, will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. 
And then during his life, Jesus says he is the good shepherd who rather than taking from his sheep comes to give, to give life, to give his own self for their life. He's the long promised, capital S, shepherd. And then amazingly, in the Gospel of John, at the end, when, Peter, when Jesus asked Peter three times if he loves him, the same Peter who wrote 1 Peter 1 here, Peter says, yes, Lord, you know it. And Jesus says three times to him, Peter, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Here feeding and pastoring, doing the work, the verb of shepherding are synonymous. Jesus, the good shepherd, has finally come, and he's given himself as the lamb for his sheep, but now he's leaving. And now he will pastor his sheep through Peter and through other under-shepherds, not just apostles, but local church leaders, overseers, pastors, Peter's fellow elders, as he says. And so Paul says in Acts 20, 28, this is to the elders in Ephesus, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for, same verb, to shepherd, to pastor, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So, see it in this text, as well as 1 Peter, the elders are also overseers, and they are to care for, or literally to pastor the church of God. Elders who are overseers, pastor, shepherd. You can make that verb into a noun. Finally, in the book of Revelation, one last stop here on our shepherding imagery reminder. Two images of Jesus as a shepherd in the book of Revelation. And it cuts two ways. The lamb, as shepherd in chapter 7, will guide them to springs of living water. That's what shepherds do. Guide the sheep to living water. Feed the sheep. And in three texts in Revelation, chapter 2, chapter 12, chapter 19, the shepherd will rule with a rod of iron. Which doesn't mean he's forceful and harsh with his people. But that he protects them from enemies with his rod. They want their shepherd to be strong. They don't want their shepherd to be forceful and harsh with them, but they want him to have strength to protect them from enemies. The shepherd's rod and staff are for protecting and guiding his flock. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Like that little lamb chewing the, chewing the grass, looks up and sees the shepherd's rod. How does the rod comfort the sheep? You're going to protect the sheep with the rod. That rod might end up on a wolf skull. So elders, shepherd. Just a quick taste there of the the richness of this shepherding imagery. It's centrally feeding and watering. Green pasture, still water, Psalm 23, but also protecting. Shepherding means caring for the sheep, leading with gentleness and kindness, with persuasion and patience, and wielding the rod of protection with strength and decisiveness toward various threats to the flock. So elders are plural, elders are pastors, Third preliminary observation, elders exercise oversight. 
I'll be briefer with this one. The second one was the longest preliminary observation. The verb that augments shepherd in 1 Peter 5 is exercising oversight. It's a form of the noun overseer, which is used in Acts 20, 28, as we saw, and four other New Testament texts. Oversee, in this context, doesn't mean simply to watch and observe merely. Like you're in a tower without a stairs or door to get out, and you're just watching. Oh, that wolf got the sheep over there. Look to the, look to the right, Bob. It's not just to see what's happening and watch, but also to see to it that important observations about the flock and any threats to it become tangible initiatives and actions in the life of the church. You see it, and you see to it that something appropriate is, is done to address the danger or the threat or provide the green pastures that need to be coming in the future. Which brings us to the heart of the passage in the three not buts. Verses two to three. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, and here they are, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Oh, that's so glorious, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So let's take these in reverse order. Let's go backwards and start with not domineering, but exemplifying. This really gets at the heart of what we're doing in all three of these. We saw God's condemnation for the leaders of Israel who ruled with force and harshness. Peter says, not domineering, which is the same language translated elsewhere as not lording it over. Remember that from Jesus' words, from Paul's. It's built on a strong verb, which is kurieo, lord, as a verb, with kata, a strengthening prefix, strong verb. That in other contexts will refer to Jesus' lordship. It's the kind of strong lordship Jesus has in Christ alone in Romans 14, 1 Timothy 6. Or it can refer to the kind of lordship that sin once had over us. Romans 6, twice. Romans 7. Or it can refer to the kind of lordship that Christian leaders do not have over those in our charge. Luke 22, 25. The same verb here in 1 Peter 5 is the one Jesus uses in Mark 10, 42. I got to think Peter recognizes that and perhaps uses it because of Jesus' words in Mark 10, 42. Here's, here's Mark 10, 42. Those who are considered rulers... Just, just a note there, that, that language, those who are considered rulers. It doesn't just say those who are rulers... But those who seem to be rulers, those who purport to be rulers, those who think themselves rulers, it's almost as if he's saying, leaving space for the real ruler. Putin may pretend to be a ruler. He's not the ruler. Or Biden. Or your local church pastors. You may seem to be rulers. Those who seem to be rulers, who are considered rulers, I think first and foremost reference here is themselves, that they're thinking, they're seeming themselves to be rulers of the Gentiles, lord it over them. 
and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be among you. There's this use of the verb in the language of Jesus for us as pastors. So, okay then, what will it be like among us then? It won't be like that. What will it be like? Verse 43, Mark 10, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the opposite of lording it over our people is serving them, assisting their good, attending to their joy, helping their souls. Like Christ himself. Not coming to be served, but to serve. Not to be assisted, but to assist. Not to be attended to, but to attend to. This is the same language that Paul uses in, uh, to the Corinthians when he talks about his labors as an apostle. 2 Corinthians 1.24, he says, not that we lord it over your faith. So even apostles don't lord it over in the sense. Pastors don't do it. Even apostles don't do it. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. As in Mark 10, lord it over implies exercising some privilege or seeking and obtaining some personal or private benefit from the work. Benefit from them versus through them or with them. Rather, Paul's vision of the opposite in leadership, the opposite of lording it over, is working with them for their joy. The we here is Paul and his assistants, Timothy and Silas, and he says we, we work, we labor, we give effort, we expend energy. It's not just overflow, but it's work, it's labor. Like Jesus says in Matthew 9, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers, the workers are few. Pray earnestly to the Lord of Harvest to send out laborers. The work of Christian ministry might begin in overflow, but then it takes some effort to complete the overflow. It doesn't all happen in overflow. I'm just flowing through ministry here. I hope that a kind of overflow prompted you at the beginning and often prompts you, but we don't complete our ministries in mere overflow. Overflow gets us going and then we sweat. Sometimes literally, but emotionally and spiritually. We work in the work. The Apostle Paul had a gargantuan work ethic and he did not suffer lazy men as pastors. We'd go more and more about that. We talk about work ethic. But Paul, of all people, did not see a spot for laziness in ministry. But it's work. We work for your joy. But it isn't this work alone. There's also a we in the company of the leaders, but there's also a with you. He's doing the work. He says, we work with you for your joy, with the people. So pastors equip the saints to engage, to themselves expend effort and invest energy to work with us. This is, this is vital to keep in mind in our discipling ministry, in our counseling ministry, that we work with them and not instead of them 
at every turn. We're, we're bringing them into it. We're working, and sometimes it takes more work to not simply do it for them, but to bring them into the work where there's accountability, there's responsibility. We don't do it all for them. We go the extra mile, put in more work to win them into leaning in, working with us, taking responsibility, and not merely being consumers of our feeding ministry. And that work, Paul says, is for your joy. This is not thin, fleeting sugar highs. He's talking real, deep, lasting, long-term, durable joy in Christ. Joy that that tastes the next age, even in this painful, evil one. In Christian joy, our promised blissful future in Christ is brought into the painful present, which means the frictions and sufferings of our present time do not preclude real joy even now, but make us all the more desperate for real joy. So Christian leaders, as workers for the joy of their people, are not to be controlling or domineering, or lording it over our people, but rather we are to serve, in the words of Jesus, as workers for our people's joy, in the words of Paul, as examples, in the words of Peter. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. It can be a humbling thing, brothers, just to to think, reflect on our role as examples. We're not here because... We're world-class in our intellect or managerial skills or oratory. Our people can find such better speakers on the internet. First and foremost, our people need examples of not world-class Christianity, but healthy Christianity in their midst. All the more beautiful as a plurality that that, uh, elders would be examples to the flock of healthy Christianity. Don Carson talks about uh, the elder qualifications being remarkable for being unremarkable. (laughs) In one sense, if you compare the elder qualifications to the traits of our society and the world, oh, they're remarkable. That takes a changed life. That takes supernatural work. And on the other hand, you can look at that list and say, that's really modest, not a drunkard. And some of these things are, are, are pretty obvious. You know, this is not like, whoa, super saint. This is average, healthy examples. Number two, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Shameful gain would be some benefit from the work that is not befitting of the work. The gain doesn't match the work. The gain exploits those who are being worked for. There's some gain for the leader that is not a gain, but a loss for the flock and for the glory of Christ, whether that's money as the driving motivation or power or respect or comfort or the chance to perform and be on the platform. In terms of eagerness, the epistle to the Hebrews gives this important glimpse into the dynamic of Christian leadership as workers for the joy of their people. I love this Hebrews 13, 17 passage. Obey your leaders. And submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Hebrews 13, 17 is the reason that John Piper says, 
There is a joy without which pastors cannot profit their people. Our people need us to have a kind of deep, stable, appropriately manifest joy that we might labor from that and not groaning for their advantage. It's their benefit, their profit to have happy pastors. It's a beautiful marriage-like complementary vision of human relationships here in Hebrews 13. The leaders, for, they, for their part, they work. They labor for the advantage, the profit, the gain of the church. And the church, for its part, wants its leaders to work not only hard, but happily, without groaning, because the pastor's joy in leading will lead to the church's own benefit. I think our people know this deep down, even if they haven't recently lingered over and reviewed Hebrews 13, 17. The people want their pastors to labor with joy because they know their leaders are working for theirs. Christ gives leaders to his people for their joy. Pastors are glad workers for the gladness of their people. And if the people see evidence of this and become convinced of it, how eager will they be to, 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 to submit to such leaders? The, the prospect of submitting to a leader radically changes when you are persuaded that that person is not working for his own private benefit, but for your good. That word submission, such a negative word, you so negatively in our society, many bad connotations. How might the whole context of the word submit, the charge to submit in Hebrews 13 and be subject in 1 Peter 5, 5 change when we see it in the context of this vision of shepherding and oversight and pastoring as working for the joy of our people. There's no charge to submit in verse 5 until verses 2 and 4 have established a context of pastors who work for the joy of their people, who are willing and eager and exemplary. They feed the flock, not themselves. They attend to the flock's needs, not their own. They gain as the flock gains, not as the flock loses. Have you ever considered in this pattern of submission texts in the New Testament, what actions and initiatives and care are required from husbands and fathers and governors and pastors before the charge is given to submit? So prone to just zero in on a charge to submit. Oh, it's a problem. Husbands, love your wives and be kind, not harsh. Colossians 3.18. Then, wives submit. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Ephesians 6.3. But provoke them to what? Joy? Gratitude? Then children, submit. Civil governors, be God's servants for society's good, avenging wrongdoing. And then citizen, submit. Pastors, feed the flock through public teaching and paying careful attention to the flock and keeping watch over the flock. Congregation, submit. Godly pastor elders give of themselves, their time, their energy, their attention to work for the joy of the flock. Therefore, church. Submit to such men. 
In Hebrews 13, 17, negatively says that pastors will be held accountable. God will hold us accountable. Positively, it says to the church, this will be to your advantage, your benefit, your joy, if you let them labor with joy, for your joy, and not with groaning. When we as pastors and leaders in the church show ourselves to be workers for the joy of our people, we walk in the steps of the great shepherd. This is what he did. This is what he does. He's the great worker for our joy. He bore the greatest cost for our good and not to the exclusion of his own joy. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Isaiah 53, 11, out of the anguish of his soul as the suffering servant, he shall see and be satisfied. That's the call in pastoral ministry, in the anguish of our souls, to see, see beyond it, be satisfied in our God. As workers for the church's joy, we pastors emphatically pursue gain. Not shameful gain, but what do you call it? Shameless gain? Gain that doesn't have shame of being incommensurate with the work? That is our joy in the joy of our church to the glory of our Savior. Joy now, joy in the coming shameless reward. This is an amazing reward offered here. Verse 4, when the chief shepherd appears, brothers, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. And then finally, number three, not under compulsion, but willingly. Our churches do want happy pastors. Not dutiful clergy, not groaning ministers. The kind of people are, that our people want, the kind of pastors they want, are pastors who want to do the work and labor with joy for their joy. They want pastors who serve not under compulsion, not with twisted arm, but willingly, from the heart, willingly. And then he says, as God would have you. Do you hear that? So not just our people, but God himself wants pastors who labor willingly from the heart, not under compulsion. He wants us to aspire to the work. That's what 1 Timothy 3, chapter 1, 1 Timothy 3, verse 1 begins with, if you aspire to the work, it begins in desire. He desires a noble task. He wants those who aspire to the work. And he wants us to do it with joy, Hebrews 13, 17. Not dutifully, not under obligation, but willingly, eagerly, happily. And that phrase, as God would have you, does not mean that God requires something of us that is different from his own character and actions. But as God would have you means as God himself is, as God himself does, literally, kata theon, according to God, like God, like he does, and how he likes it. It's the kind of God he is. Not under compulsion. He's not an under compulsion God. He's willingly, happily, gladly. 
it says something about our God that he would have it this way. He is the infinitely happy, blessed God, 1 Timothy 1.11, who acts from the boundless, immeasurable bliss of the eternal Godhead. He wants pastors to work for joy because he himself works with joy. He acts from fullness of joy. And he is a God most glorified not by heartless duty, but by our eagerness and our enjoyment. And he himself cares for his people willingly, eagerly, happily. So happy pastors and elders, not groaning pastors and elders, make for happy churches and for a glorified Savior. Pastors who enjoy the work and work with joy and are a benefit and an advantage to their people is what he wants. Let me end with two ways to make this a little bit practical. So you may feel at this moment, well, that's great. It's both good news that the pastorate is to be happy work and is a challenge because I don't always feel happy. And you might be in a season where the joy has almost disappeared or feels gone. And my prayer for our time today, among other things, is that God would be pleased to restore the joy. And let me offer a couple practical ways in which this vision of joy, a stable joy, a steady joy, not joy alone, it's challenged, it's buffered, buffeted. There's difficult times. We weep with those who weep. And yet, at the bottom, there's a joy in God that sustains us. Let me close with two practical manifestations of this vision here in this first session. I've got two suggestions, among others, for what it might mean for us as pastors or aspiring pastors to be workers for the joy of our people in Christ. One of these is private and early morning, and one is corporate and late night. At least it's late night, late night for me. We do our pastor's meetings at 8.30 every other Thursday night because we want to be able to put our kids down. I mean, there is, there's a staff meeting during the week. You guys have staff meetings on Mondays during the day for those who are full-time at the church. But for our full group of pastor elders, some of us work for the church, some not. I'm full-time at Desiring God. I'm not, a, I'm not staff at the church. We gather every other Thursday night, so it's a late night application for me. Maybe for you it's during the week or some other point. So what does it look like for me to pursue my joy in the joy of our people to the glory of God? Number one, alone in the morning. I just want to channel some George Mueller for a couple minutes because he not only speaks about the pursuit of joy first thing in the morning, but also does so in the context of ministry. He himself is in ministry and he talks about it in the ministry context. So in the words of George Mueller, my first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. My prayer is that this would land on you, brothers, not as a burden, but as a blessing, not as an obligation, but as an opportunity. This is not a have to as much as a get to. It's a glorious get to brothers, to feed on God, to get our souls happy in him, not with the accent on us and our doing, but on him, his glory, what he's done, his power. He gives, we receive. He speaks through his word. We listen. 
We come hungry, and he says, I'm the bread of life for your soul. We come thirsty, and he says, ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And so Mueller says, the first thing to be concerned about is not how much I might serve the Lord. So here's a ministry context here. The first thing is not how I might serve the Lord, what I might do for others' joy, but how I might get my soul into a happy state and how my inner man might be nourished. So how did Mueller pursue this? His focus, in his words, this is what he says, he focused on the reading of the Word of God and meditation on it. Oh, the joys of unhurried, even leisurely meditation on the words of God himself to feed our souls, to nourish our souls. And he says, that thus my heart might be comforted, encouraged, warned, reproved, instructed, and thus while meditating, my heart might be brought into experiential communion with the Lord. So it wasn't merely reading, but meditating, slowing down, pausing, pondering, feeding on the nourishment of God's word. He would meditate. He says, searching as it were into every verse to get blessing out of it. Brothers, don't be ashamed to do this. Come to God's word. Search as it is for blessing in every verse. Not for the sake of public ministry of the word, he says. Not for the sake of preaching on what I had meditated upon, but for the sake of obtaining food for my soul. That's number one, early in the morning. Second one to end here, a practical point of when we're gathered together as pastors, how we're workers for the joy of our people. How often, brothers, in our call to govern, to lead through prayer, and collective wisdom and decision-making for the church, do we find two or more options lying before us? This is all the time. I mean, there's, there's certain things where we come to it. There's a very swift collective mind. We know what needs to be done. We come to that action almost automatically. And there's other times, boom, fork. Which way is this going? This is a good moment to check ourselves as pastors. What is our framework for making decisions of leadership in the life of our church. It can be so easy to slip into a selfish mindset. What is easiest? What's most convenient for those of us sitting around this table? We almost ask it that way. Look around the table, the four of us, five of us, three of us, nine of us here. What's most convenient for us? Our families, our schedules. Without saying it or thinking it explicitly, how might our preferences and comforts becoming to shape the church? How might we make church life more convenient for us? Rather than asking, which path, so far as we can tell, will be best for our people's true joy in Christ? But here's the hard part about that. When you ask the question like that and answer it in light of that, you find that the answer is often the path that is more costly to the pastors. Not always. There are some glorious correspondences in church life. But sometimes, 
the harder road of the two for us is the better road for the joy of our people. But this, brothers, this is the work that we're called to. It's called work, laborers. We're not supposed to subconsciously be calculating our conveniences at every point, but working for the joy of our people. If our team of pastors and elders trends toward the personal preferences and conveniences of the pastors and elders, then we are not loving our people well. We're not working with them for their joy, but already are on a pathway of using them for ours. But when we are workers for their joy, knowing that Christ is most glorified in his church, when his church is most satisfied in him, then from joy, we set aside our own convenience and personal preferences, and together we labor for the joy of our people in Jesus. We'll do some Q&A in the next session. Let me pray for us now, do our break. I'll hang out here during the break, I'm eager to answer any questions, and then we'll have some time set aside for Q&A with the next session. So Father in heaven, I pray you would feed these men. I pray that you would nourish their souls. If the tank is full right now, keep feeding them. We need to eat again tomorrow. We gotta eat every day from your word, from you. Be strengthened. And if their tank is empty, Father, would you be pleased in our gathering together? Would you be pleased in their next moments of communion with you over your word to feed their souls? Make them happy. Make us happy, Father, in you. In all the undulations, in all the dynamics of daily life where we feel our joy to go up and down, Father, would you make us to be men who are steadily, solidly, resiliently happy in Jesus and so we can labor for the profit together of our people. Work in us now this vision. Help us as we work out some of the practical applications and bless our, in, bless our break here and our engagement with each other. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.